Welcome to the Author Blur Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Maynard. So today I'm speaking with Peter Roach. Very interesting, gives a lot of details on all the events in his life that led him to create the novels he did. At first, you might sit and say, okay, this doesn't sound like the book for me, but once you dig into listening to what he has to say, listening to all the different things that he discusses in his book, if you like thrillers and you want to find a different type of story to get into, something that might make you question or wonder something that you're not used to, you might really be interested in listening to what Peter has to say. I enjoyed our conversation with him. He was very intriguing and had a lot of stories and information that I just haven't dealt with personally. So I found him interesting myself. You can always find him and, of course, all the other authors I've had on the show and will have on the show at authorblurb.com. I always encourage everyone to go there, visit the site, find the articles that some of the authors have written, find different things that might interest you, find the shows. You can always find where they're streamed, where they're playing in video, and about anything else. You can also reach out to me there. So I appreciate you being here. I always appreciate as much as I can to have you join the show and let me know what you think. You can send me a message through authorblurb.com. You can reach out to me however you want by possibly just giving me a rating and review. That lets me know if you like it as well. And I always love seeing those. So with that being said, authorblurb.com is the place to go. And now let's get into the conversation with Peter Roche and go from there. Thank you. Enjoy. So I'm here with Peter Roche. And as a author of thrillers and horror, he's a three-time author, I believe award-winning I saw. Peter, I appreciate you being on here. I'm going to just hack up like I do most times with anything when it comes to trying to talk about other people's books. Can you tell me a bit about yourself, about your books, and then we can start learning a bit more about everything? Absolutely. Uh, well, you said my name correctly, the last name. <laughs> I usually tell people it's just like cockroach. Uh, just throw the S in there. Um, and yes, I, I, I do declare myself an award-winning writer, but I'm also very transparent that the awards that I've won have been for writing advertisements mostly. Uh, I've had a pretty long career uh, in advertising, and I don't think I've actually won anything except the, except the respect of my wife, maybe, um, <laughs> when it comes to writing uh, novels. But, you know, when you're trying to create that, that uh, catchy eye blurb, you, you, you just uh, you rely on everything that you can pull from. So it's not untrue, uh, but it's not wholly true as it relates to the books. I, I have written three novels. Uh, I call them novels. I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, there, there's new words developing every day to describe where literature fits right. in the spectrum. You know, are they novellas? Um they certainly would have been considered novel length back in the day, but uh, I'm growing increasingly aware that uh, the publishing industry at large kind of has it in their mind that, you know, something has to be 70 to 90,000 words maybe to even be considered a novel. But we'll just call them books. Three books. I've written three books. There you uh, go. Yeah. And uh, the first one I published in uh, 2012. It's called My Dead Friend Sarah. 
the second book I wrote and published was in 2014. It's called But I Love You. And my most recent book, uh, the book that I hope to talk a little bit about with you today, uh, is called Future Skinny. And I published that. That came out in May of this year. So I, I am a guy who has written a lot of stuff, probably stuff that may, maybe you've seen or, or some of your listeners may have seen in terms of advertisements. Um, that's not why I write books. It's just, I mean, I, I fell into writing uh, ads. That That is in and of itself a very long story, but I'll just tell you it was not my intention to go work in the advertising industry. But um, when I graduated from college, uh, I had taken a trip to New York City. I wanted to move to New York City. I had a degree and a portfolio in uh, in writing for advertisements, and that was the quickest way to get to New York. Hey, take a job in New York City, find an ad agency to work for. I, I honestly, I had designs on being a musician. I, I play the drums, I play the guitar, I played in bands most of my life, and I really thought that that's where I was headed. But uh, once I got up there, you know, advertising is in of itself very fun, very demanding, can be anyway, and and that became uh, really my my thing for a long time. I did not write, I did not write outside of that. I did not play music. It, it kind of it kind of took over. Along with along with my you know alcohol, I'm also a recovering addict and alcoholic. I'll have 14 years sobriety this October. And um, you know those those two things early on, the writing and advertising and alcohol and drugs, they, they kind of really pushed me for a long time. And I mm -hmm. did a lot of amazing things despite uh, all my best efforts to to destroy my life and ruin it. Um, and so you know my adult life really has two two kind of chapters, two large chapters, I guess, or two parts, and that's pre-sobriety and post. I, I wouldn't actually sit down to write a book, my first book, My Dead Friend Sarah, until I was sober and I had a couple of years sobriety under my belt. And and it probably, therefore, is no surprise that even though My Dead Friend Sarah is a thriller and a piece of fiction, it actually deals heavily uh, with a guy who is recently sober and um, kind of revolves around those themes and, and certainly things I was dealing with at the time. Uh, although it's actually about the story about a guy who um, uh, habitually dreams about a girl who's going to a woman who's going to be abducted. And then lo and behold, he, he actually sees her uh, on the street one day and, you know, decides that it's, it's really on him to befriend her and warn her that something's coming. And it kind of goes from there. Um, anyway, it's called My Dead Friend Sarah. A lot of people, I think, you know, they think it's going to be a ghost story. <laughs> Uh, right. You learn, yeah, you learn pretty quickly when you're, you know, putting out books, uh, what a title can do. I will say that title, My Dead Friend Sarah, actually was very effective in catching people. And, and my wife, who's an, an amazing designer, she actually did the cover for that book. And um, I think the title and the cover itself drew a lot of attention. But man, I'll tell you what, when people are expecting to read like a romance about some ghosts <laughs> and that's not what they get. And they get right. a story about uh, a guy who's kind of crazy in the head and there's a lot going on, uh, obviously, as I said, about addiction. You'll get some one-star reviews. You will. Oh, you you right. definitely get, get some people who are like, I thought I was going to read a story about some ghosts who fell in love. <laughs> um, I've always been a writer. You know, like I said, I mean, I ended up in advertising. That wasn't what I wanted to do. I wrote when I was a kid. I liked telling stories when I was a kid. You know, I noticed that, you know, one of the questions that you had 
that you ask often and, 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 and sent along to me in advance was like, why do you write? And I have thought about that so often because I, I kind of wish I didn't want to write sometimes. You know? Well, um, I tend to find like one thing you said is in the information you sent me was that you write. One thing is, is you include your demons and all that stuff in your writing. Mm-hmm. So let, let me ask this then. So your first novel, My Dead Friend Sarah, Mm-hmm. So you said that's about where a guy is dealing with his demons, his alcoholism, recovery, all this stuff, right? Yeah. And I've known quite a few people through my lifetime that's been heavily in drugs, recovered from it, done. I know people that just disappeared because they got so big into drinking that they fell off the map. And I don't know anything of them at this point. Mm-hmm. So I do understand how the demons of addiction can really affect somebody in that way, especially my hometown, which is a small little farm town area. Drugs have become very bad there. Uh-huh. How, how did you find that the writing actually helped you face those demons or in your first book, where did you take and deal with those demons to pull out for your book? Well, first off, I mean, you know, I, I appreciate you sharing that. It is amazing to me uh, how much alcoholism and addiction touches everyone. I mean, it's mm-hmm. really hard if you're if you're open and honest with others about the relationships and that you have with family and friends. I mean, you find I found over time there's like there's really almost no one untouched by by addiction. Mm-hmm. And relative to me, I did not when I sat down to write a book. I had an idea of a plot line. And that was what I, what I said earlier, I thought, and it really was based on, I, I saw a woman once in the street, uh, early on in, in my sobriety. And for whatever reason, I was just, I, it, it was one of those things you see someone and you're like, I know this person. I have no idea why I know this person. And I imagine she worked somewhere around, this was in Soho, uh, somewhere in Soho. And I imagine she worked around there cause I, I saw her on more than one occasion. And there was just since then, I've come to believe that, that that sometimes we are just kind of connected in some sort of cosmic way that we don't really understand. You could meet somebody, sit next to them, and, and not have anything to say. You could sit next to somebody, a complete stranger, and feel like you've known them for lifetimes. Right. I, I never approached this woman or anything else. It was just kind of like a vibe, and, th- and that kind of launched this idea. I was like, wow, what if, you, what if you met somebody, and the minute you met them, you remembered that you knew something dangerous was going to happen to them, right? And what would it be like to try to convince them that you weren't just some whack job stalking them, you know, that you truly in your heart of hearts believed, like, I know this bad thing is going to happen to you and I'm I'm going to, you know, befriend you so I could tell you because you wouldn't just straight out be like, hey, <laughs> stranger, something bad's going to happen to you. Then, you know, you're the one probably being arrested. If I sat right. down to write the book. I, as I say, I think, uh, let's, let's do some quick math. I had about two and a half years of sobriety and mm-hmm. my sobriety, a huge part of my, my sobriety, there are lots of components, but the biggest component was AA. Uh, okay. you know, I, uh, yeah, I was in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I did do a rehab and I came out of that rehab, uh, 30 days. I was still living in New York city, living in Brooklyn. And I was doing meetings and I had a sponsor and I was doing the steps and all of that was a huge component with me not going back out 
But I will tell you, like any, not like any, some some alcoholics go into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and are and are very at ease with all of it, you know, uh, whether that's the steps or speaking or or having to work with, you know, there's no have to, but like wanting to work with a sponsor, having a sponsor, having sponsees. I had a lot of questions. I wouldn't even frame them as doubts because I don't think I ever doubted what I was doing, but I definitely felt that there was things about the program that that I needed to sort of explore and say out loud and ultimately say, you know, I ultimately ended up saying in the book. And and honestly, when I started to write the book, I had no idea that that's where it was going. I sat down and it just started to spill. And I think it it probably needed to, you know, I mean, I I think there was just this moment where it was like, this is what this is. And the more I wrote it, the more I realized that I was writing things that had been going on in my head that had been unsaid for those two years, at least unsaid in those ways. Because when you're in it, you're you're in it and you're focused and you're trying to do everything that you can. At least I was trying to do everything that I could to remain sober and not go back uh, to what I really honestly believe was going to be death for me. I mean, I, I was pr- pretty close. Right. And so I, you know, the demons... It's funny because a lot of books that I think are written about addiction, and there's so many uh, good ones, especially in fiction, there's like this whole addiction fiction sort of uh, niche that's grown and expanded. There's some amazing stories. They really, they focus on like the using days. And Mm -hmm. and when once that, there's obviously a lot of great stories to tell in that. But this is the reverse of that. In My Dead Friend Sarah, you know, the the lead character, the main character, he, he is sober and he's within that first year of sobriety. I think he has nine months, maybe eight months when the story starts. I can't remember. I haven't read it in a while, but um, there are demons within that first year. You're still people. A lot of people mistakenly assume that like, oh, I I stopped drinking and and that was the problem. No, you put down the drink and then you actually start getting down to what the real demons, you know, is what we call what I call them. And, and, And they're very real. And, you know, lying, for instance, like when I when I got sober, I realized, wow, I was also doing an, an incredible amount of lying. And mm-hmm. even though I had quit drinking, I found that I had a propensity to tell lies. And they, some, they were the most ridiculous, meaningless lies sometimes. And I had to work on that. I, so I, I ended up getting a therapist. I'm like, I, I, I got to stop lying. I have to stop embellishing. I have to stop saying as a storyteller. I think I had just let embellishment become like a thing that I wanted to do all the time. Oh, I'm going to make this is a good story. If I just add this and this, it'll be a great story. People will right. be telling this story forever. And so, you know, that that is a different type of demon. I, there's so much that you still have to work on when you end up getting sober. And, and I think that that was what this book. Now, I wrote this book. I put it out. I self-published it. I, I hired a PR firm. Uh, I don't really remember how I even found them. And I think the timing was just really good. Because I worked in advertising, I had somewhat of a name within that industry. Sobriety now, people talk about it a lot more. There's a lot more going mm-hmm. on on like Instagram and all the social networks. People are very celebratory of sobriety, I find. Okay. But in 2011, 2012, I don't think it was quite there yet. And obviously social media, while it existed in some form, hadn't really taken off to what we deal with now. I did a lot of radio. I did some some interviews in some newspapers, and it was all attached to the idea that, like, here's this guy who works in advertising. He's sober now. He's willing to talk about it. Anonymity, for me, had never been a part of it. I was somebody who had to really talk about my sobriety to keep it. And and the book 
got into a lot of hands that it wouldn't have otherwise. I mean, I, I had a pretty robust network of friends and coworkers and just acquaintances that I knew probably would take a chance on, on a first time novel from me. But in the end, I mean, I, I literally had people reach out to me who read it, complete strangers who said that it, that it helped them either make the decision to be, to try sobriety or help them within their own early sobriety. And Again, I can't say that I sat down and thought, I'm going to write a, a fiction book, a kind of thriller that that deals with alcoholism and addiction in the hopes that it helps other people get sober. Right. That oh, it I'm did, sure. that it did obviously meant a ton to me. I mean, the, the best reviews I ever got for that book are not on Amazon or Goodreads. They, they were people who reached out, found me and said, wow, I read your book and it resonated in such a strong way that I'm actually 72 days sober or, you know, I'm working a program right now. And some of the things you talked about in this book uh, resonated with me in that, in that capacity. Well, that's good. So let's go on, let's go on to your second book, because if I have a feeling that we could probably talk about the first one for quite some time, and I want to make sure that we discuss all your books as well. So the next one we have is, but I love you, Mm -hmm. which I believe is another thriller. Mm-hmm. So where does that take us? Well, that one, that one, I had a very specific idea in my head there. And, and that was that there are a lot of horrible people um, <laughs> on the planet. Right. Right. And, and what was amazing to me within the circles that I ran in, again, pre-sobriety, post-sobriety was like, wow, it's amazing how much rope we give people who are not you know, they're not murderers. They're not uh, thieves. Per se. Oh, some of them might be thieves, honestly. But right. They're just and myself included, like there's shades of gray. There's a spectrum of like bad. But I thought it would be a really interesting challenge to see if I couldn't write a story around nothing but really horrible people. Very believable, a very believable New York City kind of horrible mm-hmm. and make readers uh, have empathy for them. Uh, introduce empathy for them, find a way to make you root for maybe even the most horrible character within the books. And right. I don't, you know, I'm not the first person to, to try to do that. I think that's something that, that probably is, is done often, but that was what I sat down to do. And again, as I was writing it, it probably came to me after or during, I was just like, this is me kind of working out relationships, the relationships that I had and, and was still clinging to that I needed to let go. There was a lot of people who, you know, you could call them a variety of different things, you know, energy vampires, or there's just, again, I mean, there's obviously, there's a lot of recovery and sobriety in all the work that I've put out thus far, because they're important to me. And and a big part of that is actually figuring out, you know, the relationships that are actually a two-way street, right? Mm-hmm. And, and trying to, you know, cut ties with people who honestly, you might, you might love them for whatever reasons, a whole host of reasons. But so I don't know, I would say it's really, it, that is what it's about. But I love you is about the most horrible people you've ever loved. <laughs> so where, so I'm taking the book takes place in New York City from what you said. Yeah. Where does that book, like if I open it up and open the book up and I'm starting to read, what am I reading? What am I reading about? Because there's a whole slew of situations that horrible people like my three books I've written is based around a guy that gets into selling and dealing drugs and creating a drug empire through the urban country lives. That's not the nicest and most upstanding character you come to. Mm-hmm. So 
when you say horrible people, what kind of horrible people are you discussing? What kind of situations happen? Because, again, But I Love You might be misconstrued as it's a romance with horrible people trying to fall in love or things like that. Right. I mean, from what between the title and what you're saying. Right. Well, I mean, it is a romance. There's romance baked into it. And I mean, basically, uh, one of the one of the main characters is in love uh, with a woman who is is not in love with her. And the that woman runs basically a, a very exclusive uh, single service. All uh, right. So again, like this book, probably written right on the cusp of things like OK Cupid, or you know, there used to be a, a company called Urban Signals that connected people, strangers. It, you know, there mm-hmm. there was online dating at the time, but what I had done uh, because I was actually working with, I was doing ads for one of those services is I, I met the owner of one of those businesses that catered to a, a richer clientele. All right. Okay, you're, you're single. We're going to get you together. I, I met with her on a, hand, a handful of times to try to help develop, like, you know, branding ideas and, and, and advertising around the thing. And I just realized, I'm like, wow, you're, she, was, she was horrible. <laughs> she was doing <laughs> it for all the wrong reasons, you know? Right. She, she didn't really care about making lifelong connections uh she identified a niche and she went hard into it and she was a brilliant conversationalist she was a brilliant presenter she she, there was many many amazing things that she uh was but i don't actually think at the end of the day that she that her heart was in it for for any of the right reasons um in terms of pairing people with their soulmates so that that is a that is a a horrible character another horrible i mean there within this it goes all the way to having you know, somebody who uh, is willing to cause physical harm to people uh, just for money. Obviously, that's a fairly standard uh, kind of horrible. I, I don't know. I don't want to give too much away about any right. one of the characters as I'm thinking it through. Right. But, but it the, does give us kind of an insight about the story a little bit. And that's where I wanted to get into, because, like I said, horrible people is just a huge range of variations. So it sounds like the it's like you said a romance in it's a conflict of many different types of conflicts of people that aren't really upstanding as you said horrible people coming together and going through that so now let's go on to the third book if we may so because you said that was the newest one and you really like talking about that (laughs) so let's go into that because we all have that last book fresh in our mind and easy to discuss so tell me a bit about it. Where do we start off with it? And, oh, Crimean, I just forgot the name of it off the top. Even though oh, you just said it. So let's, where do we start off with it? Where's well, the book? The book oh, page one, start off. Page one, it's called Future Skinny. And uh, it starts off, you, you are right in the thick of it with the main character. His name is Casey. He is in a hotel room that you wouldn't wish on, you know, your worst enemy. He is sitting across a you know, a table that he's just pulled together. The table is loaded with all sorts of food, fast food, mostly. I mean, you know, everything from pizza to donut holes to uh, weight gain powder. There are uh, fried everything. I mean, if it's if you can fry it, it's on the table. And he's sitting across from, you know, uh, another man. And and there's a woman, his girlfriend, uh, Lillian, is also in the room. And what he's doing in that moment is actually binge eating. 
because uh, you know what it is is he is a what you come to find out is that he's a, a devout anorexic who can actually see the future by binge eating and it opens with you right there pretty much eating and smelling every bite uh we're talking about in the thousands of calories mm-hmm. and i have i have read that chapter uh, I've, I've you know been lucky enough to, to have a, a few different bookstores invite me to do readings on, on this and, and a couple of the uh schools that are around here where i live and i wrote it and i wanted it to feel really bad and thick and i hoped that you would honestly i hoped that people would want to stop reading it because I thought it was necessary to kind of communicate that that sort of misery, uh, which really, again, it's sort of born from the idea of like trying to give somebody some sort of taste of what it might be like for somebody who is participating in in that kind of eating for any reason, uh, which doesn't really matter if you're anorexic, bulimic, or or if you have any uh, disordered eating or eating disorders. I think we've all been guilty of overeating. Right. And, what that can feel like. And fortunately, uh, most people who have who've read the book stick along, <laughs> stick around long enough to get past that very uncomfortable moment uh, to take the rest of the ride uh, with Casey and everybody else in that book. That's how that's that. So that's that's how it opens. All right. So I'm actually very curious on why did you choose an eating disorder for future skinny to be the focus like the you said the person, Casey, can tell the future after binge eating mm-hmm. and going through the whole process. It's odd to have that as the characters, or at least from my understanding. But again, this is horror thrill thriller, which is a genre I don't dive into very often. Mm-hmm. So my perspective is it seems odd. Why did you choose that route to go? Well, I uh, in my in my life, uh, as as a addict and alcoholic, so pre sobriety and post sobriety, uh, I basically participated in what I think would be clinically referred to these days as disordered eating. Okay, All right. so I don't I don't think that I ever had technically an eating disorder. I don't believe that I was ever officially anorexic or bulimic, especially because I I now know those people and have mm-hmm. friends who truly were. But there were times when I participated in massive schemes that I concocted myself uh, because of my own obsession with my thinness. I, I graduated from college in 1995. I moved to New York City to work at advertising. I ate horribly. I picked up weight very fast. I didn't have a lot of money. I probably put on like 30 pounds, which on my frame, you know, is or isn't a lot. It's really all relative, right? Right. But for me, it was uncomfortable. I did not like the way that I looked. I, I managed to meet a, fr- a friend of mine who worked across from me. He, he had, all of a sudden, he just started looking great, I'll be honest with you. I think he was working out probably was part of it. But the other thing that he was doing was he, he, he said, hey, have you read that book, Sugar Buster? This was a, a book that came out, I think, in the early, late, late aughts. Maybe it came out as late as like 20. I'm sorry, I'm not the early aughts. I think it came out in, in the late 90s. And he gave it either gave me a copy like right before I got on a plane. I moved from New York City to Atlanta, Georgia uh, to take a different job. And I became obsessed with it like anything. I mean, I was just like, oh, this is this, here's the roadmap to getting thin, mm-hmm. cutting out sugar, cutting out carbs. I started running. 
I I left New York City and put myself in a place with my you know the, my wife at the time, um, and that removed a lot of the alcoholic symptoms. Right, I didn't have as many bars to go to. I didn't have as many alcoholic friends to hang out with. I reinvented myself as sort of like a health nick and cut to like. I don't know, maybe 10 months into it, I went back to New York City. I had lost all the weight, probably had lost uh, more than that 30 pounds. I don't really remember what my weight was at the time. But everybody in New York City who I who I saw while I was interviewing for a job to get back there was like, wow, you look great. It's so wow, you're so thin. You look amazing. You look great. I have one one friend. He was a former boss of mine. And I sat with him and even he was like, you're looking really good. But then about 15 minutes, into the lunch that we were having, he was like, are you okay? Because I, you don't have cancer, do you? And it was kind of crazy because I was, I was simultaneously like, no, dude, you know, don't, I'm so, thank you for asking. And it, it came off almost like a compliment in my head. I was like, wow, I'm, I'm looking so thin. He thinks I have cancer. I was like romanticizing it a bit, if that makes sense. It's kind of, right. and I would then go on to sort of, for, for as long as I could, uh, restrict the amount of food that I ate. I was on a very ridiculously low caloric intake outside of booze because I did right. eventually move back to Manhattan and I started drinking more often and I started drinking more. And it's pretty hard to limit your caloric intake if you're drinking beer. There's a right. lot of calories. And I hatched all sorts of schemes around that. Like I was still running. If I went out and I drank more than, I can't remember if it was two or three. I, I want to say it was like, I would allow myself to have two beers. Mm-hmm. If I had a third beer, the next day I had to run another mile. If I had a fourth beer, that was two more miles. Five beers, three more miles. So if I was out drinking very big, the next day I would get up and no matter how bad I felt, I would go out and run because I was obsessed with maintaining uh, a weight that honestly wasn't healthy. And this is the one time where my alcoholism probably saved me before it then tried to kill me itself because I couldn't keep you know, right. the alcohol. My desire to drink and booze ultimately became uh, an, an impediment to practicing disordered eating in order to keep my weight. Now, in sobriety, there have been times where my own body dysmorphia had led me to do the same thing, but for much shorter uh, periods of time because I have a network of friends and I also have all these tools. And so, you know, I, I have therapists, whatever I've done it all and I do it all. But in 2014, uh, I lost a job. Mm-hmm. My wife was pregnant. I had a kid coming. She was still working and I started running. I was, al- I was already still running, but in a healthy way with all that time on my hands, I fell back into some patterns. I started running just because I could, I was running farther and farther. I would, I would, some days I would just run a half marathon for no reason other than what else am I going to do? I noticed I started to lose weight. My wife was saying, hey, you know, she has her own issues revolving around weight and appearance. And she was, oh, you're looking really good. And it started to click again where I was like, oh, okay, yeah, what can I control here? I can't, I can't get the job. I was still licking my wounds on that. I can control the way that I look. And people will think that I look good if I'm very thin and wiry and tan because I've been running outside, whatever. There was some things. I checked myself pretty quickly. I was like, you know what? No, this is not good. I, I, I think at that time, two things had happened. One, I had a good friend who very much was uh, uh, clinically an anorexic and, and, and probably a bulimic. And I was somewhat fascinated with her ability to pull it off, to be completely honest. I thought, wow, this is amazing that you're able to do that in your own way and, and still be healthy 
come off as healthy, very successful, uh, very loved by everybody. So I, I went to a bookstore because I wanted to read more about the disease of anorexia itself. And when I got to the bookstore, there was plenty on I mean, not plenty. There was, I would say, somewhere between a half dozen and a dozen books. All of mm-hmm. them were written with uh, most of them were uh, biography, autobiography. I don't believe there was anything uh, fiction. I'm sure somewhere within the realm of fiction books, there was characters that dealt with those issues. But the books that I found, they were all about women. And I thought, well, it's interesting. How many men are anorexic? How many men are dealing with body dysmorphia? How many men uh, have these types of issues? A quick Google search said that 15% of anorexics were male. I figured this is in 20, again, 20, what is this, 2012, 2013, 14, maybe. I was like, you know what, then if, they, if it says 15%, it's more. It's mm-hmm. definitely more. If 15% answered that they were, okay. Yeah. I had another male friend who was recently sober, and I started talking to him more often because of his sobriety. And it came to find out that he was having a lot of the same issues around his weight and the way that he looked and the way that he saw himself uh, that I was. And I thought, well, maybe I should write a book that has this, that incorporates this. Some years prior to that, uh, when I had first met my, my current wife, uh, she and I had engaged in a meal that was ridiculously large. We were in, early on in the courting process, I guess you'd call it, or dating, whatever. And, and we let our guard down. We had this huge Italian meal. We ate more than, I, than we ever had eaten in front of each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, multiple main courses, desserts, tons of bread. I mean, the amount of bread that we ate in and of itself was ridiculous. And we left that date that night together. I felt horrible. I was so full, but I was happy. Right. I didn't matter. I, I was like, I don't need to be concerned about how I look because this person loves me. I love right. her and she loves me. It was strong. We were walking underneath the Williamsburg Bridge in Brooklyn, and all of a sudden I was overcome by a very powerful deja vu. There was a bus approaching. I, I don't remember any, uh, any other details than being under the bridge, the bus approaching, me walking with her and being very full. This deja vu hit. In that moment, I thought, wow. Wouldn't it be weird if all it took to see the future was just eating too much? <laughs> so I had that as a notion rolling around in my head for a while, and I married it to everything I was going through in 2014 related to my own disordered eating and just kind of obsession with my body image. And and that's how Future Skinny was born. So. All right. So where does – so how does it become a horror in the sense of what – because to me, horror screams, somebody's coming up, you either have the killer, thrillers are just, you have the killers, you have conflict, you have fighting, things like that. So I can see the thriller portion of it, or a supernatural thriller, where does the horror section of it come into? Because I've, I have a plenty of friends that are into horror, and I see what they kind of get into. Yeah, I mean, horror right now, it's actually, I spend a lot of time following a lot of different authors and independent publishers on Twitter. And what is and isn't horror is actually a pretty big, has been a pretty big topic of conversation this year and even last year. Because I think a lot of people do traditionally think, no, horror means that there's a killer. Horror means that there's a monster. Horror means that there's a killer who is a monster. Um, Mm -hmm. Think of a lot of of Stephen King, but the, you could refer to my book as psychological horror. I, okay. I think you could refer to my book as a as a genre of horror that uh, I would say it's adjacent to as body horror, um, which really is just kind of like something revolving around body. I mean, I, there are a lot of uh, people within the 
uh, LG. I understand the, and I always mispronounce it myself. So, but in that community, yeah. So in that community, there, there's obviously there's there's this whole. I mean, like I, as a white straight old man have been recently introduced to so many amazing new storytellers from within that community who are writing these fantastic fictional uh, horror narratives around the very real psychological things that they're, they have experienced within their lives, right? Mm-hmm. There are going to be some people, honestly, friends of mine, even my, even my parents, they, they would probably say, well, that's not really a horror book because they would think much like, you know, people grabbed my dead friend Sarah and said, oh, this is going to have ghosts in it. Right. Oh, this is not. I have had, you know, not the easiest time in the world pinpointing, hey, where does Future Skinny fit in the world? If I have to, you know, if you publish a book and you put it on Amazon, Amazon is going to ask you or allow you to say, eh, it's this, this or that. Right. Maybe right. I think two or three things. Right. And it is a little bit of everything. I had a, I had a review early on. Um, from uh, Midwest Book Review. And in that, the reviewer said, this is, you know, it was a lovely review. And at the end of it, she said that it was a book that couldn't be identified by any singular genre, that it hopped through many of them. I was very nervous about referring to it as, as, as a piece of horror. But I think to me, what I've, come to, what I've come to think of as acceptable for horror lately is if you read a book and you feel that this person is engaged in something that is crippling and terrible mm-hmm. and it doesn't have to have you know ghosts and sp- i love and trust me i love those types of books too <laughs> i love a good slasher i love a good right I, I like i like a lot of horror movies i was very nervous to, to even refer to it and so honestly i didn't and i'm surprised that i actually referred to it as a horror book with you because i think <laughs> only recently have i felt confident enough uh, with some conversations and, and, and maybe some additional reviews that came in in the meantime to say there are elements of horror within this book. And, and I think that's just because what the person is going through is horrifying. I mean, at the end of the day, it is a horrifying journey that he is on. And, and really, when you think about horror that's happening around us in the world, I mean, there's plenty of horror happening. Oh, yeah. Right? But none of, it, none of it involves fictional monsters well, maybe some of it does. That would be awesome if that's actually happening, really. But in a weird way, I could get into that. But do you know what I mean? I, I just think what horror can and can't be, we shouldn't we, we shouldn't rely on we shouldn't make it fit within this idea that like, oh, it has to, you know, have Freddy Krueger in it to, to quantify it. Right. So okay. And now so it's not the typical slasher horror, the thriller kind of keep you on your toes, keep the heart racing kind of horror. So I understand. I can see where you're going with the, it's bringing the fear, mental psychological fear into the, the novel or the book to be able to get people to get their heart racing, feel the anguish and all this. So it makes sense. So with Casey going into this, what, I mean, there has, I have to imagine there's more to, him just being able to see the future, something has to happen that conflicts with the eating disorder and his seeing the future. What do, what do you kind of, let's say just getting him started, what does he step into that actually brings the novel to life? 
Well, I mean, I think first and foremost, he, he meets a, he meets a woman mm-hmm. and he, he falls for her pretty quickly. And what happens is while he's dating her and he sort of realizes that he, he can see the future by eating too much, because like I said, similar to me in the, in, in those early days, he, he's, he's eating with her. He eats a lot more than he's ever allowed himself to eat probably in decades. And he has a vision. And that vision turns out to, it comes to fruition the very next day. What he saw happens. Right. And when he realizes that, he can't really let it go. He decides he has to try it again. Like, what what, what would cause that? I think it might have been the eating. I'm going to do it again. Ultimately, he is so driven to protect this woman who it turns out is running from uh, an abusive spouse. And... He, he comes to figure that, well, maybe I could turn this into a thing where we make good money. If I could read futures legitimately, maybe mm-hmm. we could charge money for it. And she probably initially is not into it, but comes to think, all right, fine, let's go that route. And they start basically, he starts reading futures for other people for cash. At a certain point, he is uh, playing around with the idea of like wanting to see farther into the future. And you know, just on, on a simple hypothetical math, he decides, well, maybe that's really just no, no harder than eating more. If I push right. myself, to eat even more. As he's doing that and experimenting with that, he actually ends up having a vision of her, this new girlfriend of his, Lillian, uh, committing a murder. And he decides not to tell her about it. All right. Now, when that comes to fruition, just to, uh, I think two or three days later within, within the uh, story, he realizes that that was a pretty bad decision. Now she's killed the person. They have to get in contact with her uh, abusive ex because he is somebody that can help with a situation like that. And ultimately, he agrees in exchange for help in, in cleaning up her mess uh, to basically be the personal psychic of this pretty horrible West Texas gun runner is, is basically what her ex is. And... You know, that that launches the the rest of the story, you know, that sort of journey that he's going to go on after that. And a big part of it. And, and I think really the horror that, that I hope people relate to is like this is the last thing in the world he wants to do is eat because you can you can only eat so much with and, and maintain a certain weight. You can exercise yourself into the ground. You can turn to bulimia. But ultimately, in his situation, there's going to be an end to it. And right. that. So, you know, take yourself out of the eating part of it for a minute. In fact, when I was pitching this book early on, I I kept saying to people, I was like, imagine everything that you ever wanted was as easy as doing the one thing you swore you never would. Right. Right. And that that's that's at the crux of it. And I think that's actually probably why a lot of people who have read the book thus far have really enjoyed it because, you know, or or have had it resonate with them. I don't know if anyone enjoyed it. I think people (laughs) are enjoying it. But um, it's a hard story to enjoy. That we we spend so much time thinking like, wow, if X, Y, or Z would just happen, my life would be so much better. It would all be figured out. If I met the perfect girl, if I had the perfect job, if I all of a sudden had $10 million, this is really like, hey, all those things are right there. All you got to do is this thing that you swore you'd never do. And in his case, that's eating a lot. All right. be, you know, and, and I just think the horror, again, really comes from like, truly trying to bring to life just how difficult and how much mental duress that causes uh, a person like him in this situation. I understand. 
I mean, it sounds like all three books would be something to keep somebody on their toes and definitely bring out a whole lot of different con- conversational topics that a lot of people do avoid. Yeah. So with that being said, we've been talking for, I think, about 40, 45 minutes. I don't want to take up a horrible amount of your time no because I appreciate you being on. Where do you want people to find you? So if... They don't want to go to authorblurb.com where I have all your links, all your information that you've given me. Where do you prefer them to find you? Well, you can find me uh, on Instagram at just at Peter Roche. You can find me on Twitter also at Peter Roche. Um, You can find me at Mm PeterRoche.com. And if you want to see what books and read a little bit more and see what people thought, then I just recommend going to Goodreads uh, and looking at what some people have said about all three books there. And or you can even just write me at peterrush at gmail.com and say, hey, man, what's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> I understand. And I think I have all but the email, all the links for the social medias and websites in the show notes and on authorblurb.com. So with that being said, people can go there, find you, get in touch with you. I appreciate you being here. It was a pleasure talking with you. This is going to be the end of the conversation for everybody else. But if you hold on for me, we'll talk a little bit more. Thank you, man. It was a pleasure being on the show. I appreciate it.